My name is Prentice, and I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. I want to, again, welcome those that are watching online. Maybe you chose to stay in today to avoid uh, the smokiness, uh, or you're traveling, but if you are watching or will be watching uh, midweek, we're just so glad that you chose to join us. Uh, We are going to continue our series uh, called Restoration, uh, Life in the Spirit Amidst Racism. And this is a sermon series that uh, all six locations of Bethany uh, are talking about, going through, uh, and we are in week three. And today our text comes from uh, Acts chapter 10, and it's a story of Cornelius and Peter. And I love this story because it's basically two people from the opposite sides of the, of the tracks, and God, through the Spirit, moving in their lives, convicting them that the barrier must be broken, and they need to be united. Uh, and so uh, we, we're going to talk about that story, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, but before we get there, let's read the text, and I will pray. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse uh, 34 says this, it says, Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no, par- no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is, is acceptable to him. <clears throat> you know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have brought us here, whether in person or virtually, uh, in this space to just learn more about you and to grow in you and to learn what it means to love you and love others. And so, God, please continue to just mold our hearts. Give us humility. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are open to be receptive for correction for confession, for peace, for joy, for healing. God, we know that we all bring in different things in this room, and we are so thankful that, as Ben said, you meet us where we are at, and we're so thankful that you do. God, we pray for uh, our state, our country right now, and and the fires uh, that are going on that we feel and we see and we smell God, would you just be with the firefighters, keep them safe, and the, and the first responders. We are so thankful for the work they do for our community and uh, keeping us safe. So continue to, to protect them and their families. And again, uh, we're so thankful for the people that you have called to protect us and help and serve our communities. In your name we pray, amen and amen. All right, so a few days ago, uh, a friend and I, we were talking about a TV show, and, and maybe it's kind of a dark show, and so I'm not saying, hey, everyone, go uh, after church, go, go watch this, but it's a show called uh, Black Mirror, and some of you might be familiar with, with this show, uh, but particularly, we were talking about this episode uh, where it was about this idea of social media, and now, if you don't know anything about the show Black Mirror, it's considered sci-fi. But it's kind of eerie because the way that they do this or each episode is very close to kind of what we might experience in our own society, in our community. So anyways, this episode was about social media. 
And, and what happens is in this sci-fi fictional episode is that one would, or everybody would have a phone and uh, they would rate every interaction with somebody else. And not only that, they all had this like in, this implant in their eyes where every time you looked at somebody, there would be a rating uh, of their score from essentially zero to five. And here's a little picture of what the episode looked like. So there's a person, uh, the main character of this episode was named Lacey. Uh, she just got done getting coffee and then just rated him. Uh, on the app, and his social score was a 3.7. Not bad, out of five. And, and so it was an episode about how people rate one another. Now, uh, if one wanted a high rating, so close to a five, uh, A, you would be, uh, ra- be seen as hanging out with all the right people. You would have wealth, you would have resources, you would wear all the right clothes, you would drive the right car, uh, you would have a big fancy house, kind of similar to how we rate people today. And so for those that exude that kind of personality or those social circles or status, you would be close to a five. Uh, The opposite was also true if you didn't hang out with uh, the social elites, if you didn't have the fancy cars or the big house or, or what have you, uh, then your score would be lower. Now, as you might have guessed, uh, this is obviously a sci-fi thing, but to some degree, the eeriness of this uh, is true for us. Now, this is fictional, but doesn't this sound familiar to you, even in our own social media? You know, it's all about having all the right followers and having these likes and, and comments and shares and, and all these things. And, uh, and, you know, if you've seen the documentary Social uh, Experiment or, or read other articles about this, this thing called the like button, uh, it was intentionally created to create this dopamine reaction. So people would constantly be on their phones or on this app and, and so forth. And so many other social media platforms have also created this, uh, this technique. But reality is, it's nothing new. It's this whole you know, pursuit of validation that is important to, to many of us. To, to all of us, I would say, it's, it's a part of being human. But the question that is at hand, uh, or the danger is at at hand, is that we, as consumers and even as people, we have fallen, I would say foolishly, into the myth of believing that we can assign validation to people. We have mistakenly believed that uh, we have the ability to categorize people in certain buckets or to rate people, as the show in Black Mirror had shown us, that we can rate people uh, with our own assumptions, our own stereotypes, even our own biases towards what is good, what isn't. We have convinced ourselves that we have the power to assign essentially value to other people, again, based on our own assumptions, our own assumptions of what is deemed as worthy and what is less worthy of validation. And yes, this can be a variety of different assumptions that we make about people. 
we make assumptions, and maybe I'm just projecting my own self because I make these assumptions. I make assumptions. We make assumptions about uh, people that are experiencing homelessness. We make assumptions based off uh, people, how they live, and, their, and how they decide to, and who they decide to love and marry, and we would call sexual minorities. We we make assumptions about people in the opposite or different genders. We make assumptions about people in different socioeconomic levels, what zip code people live in, their marital status, maybe their physical abilities or inabilities or disabilities. But what's also hard to deny, and this is really in the case of our series, is that we also make assumptions based off of the color of one's skin. And sometimes it's hard to admit this, and sometimes it's hard to even see this uh, because of our own blindness. And last week we talked about what it looks like uh, to experience privilege. Uh, We talked about what it means to live into this culture of whiteness. Remember, whiteness isn't white people, but it's an ideology. And so for whatever reason, we have experienced and we also experience a sense of assumptions around people. I remember in elementary school, uh, (laughs) I think this is funny, so you can laugh if you want to, Uh, there was a kid that came up to me and asked me if I knew Kung Fu. And and, uh, first of all, I didn't. And second of all, do you, you know, I was thinking, do you ask everyone in class if they knew Kung Fu? And the assumption was that I knew Kung Fu because I was Asian, though I'm Korean-American, Kung Fu is a Chinese art. Anyways, they're not thinking about that in third grade. And he asked me if I knew Kung Fu, and the interesting part was, I remember specifically, I would even say his name, but I'm afraid he might watch one day, but he was kind of seen as the bully around, you know, third grade class. He was big, he was strong, he was kind of mean, and he comes up to me and says, Prentice, do you know Kung Fu? And out of, I don't know if it was out of intimidation or panic, uh, I immediately said, yes, in fact, I do. And, And there was this sense of, like, immediate respect that I earned from him, because it was like, he was, like, scared of me all of a sudden. And I don't know why I said yes, but I said yes, and the next, next thing I knew, he then asked me, would you teach me Kung Fu? And I swear to goodness, this is a true story, no exaggeration. He asked me if I would teach him Kung Fu. And, and again, out of panic, I said yes. And, and, and so I remember several recesses. We would be out in the playground into a field, and I would just make up random moves. Like, I, don't, I had zero idea what I was doing. But he bought it, so it was great. And so to this day, I hope that didn't get him into trouble thinking he could defend himself or use it or something. Uh, But the whole idea was he thought I knew Kung Fu because I was Asian, even though there's a whole different layers that didn't make sense. But we do that. We make assumptions about people based on the way they look based on where they're from, based on what language they speak, based on how much money they have or don't have. Have you ever presumed a person to be dangerous based off their ethnicity? Have you ever assumed somebody was not American or not American enough because of the way they look? Have you ever assumed that they didn't speak English or let alone speak English well because of the neighborhood they came from? Have you ever showed partiality 
at work, maybe with coworkers or with colleagues or with colleagues or with customers if you're in sales? Have you ever preferred one neighbor or one neighborhood over another due to demographics? Now these are just small examples out of many of how oftentimes, whether we know it or not, whether we're conscious or not, there's something in us that if we're being absolutely honest with ourselves, which I hope that we can be here today, that we have some, some assumptions about certain people categorically. And again, maybe we, the way that we rate people like this show isn't with blatant, hateful, vulgar speech or even violence, but maybe they show up in more subtle ways. In fact, we have a, we have a name for this, and, and maybe some of us can relate to some of the things. You don't have to say it out loud, but we call these microaggressions. Now, there's, very, uh, there's a lot of different definitions of what microaggressions are, but if you can throw up the slide, uh, one professor of psychology, Kevin Nadal, he says that microaggressions are this, are defined as the everyday, subtle, intentional, and oftentimes unintentional. I would say, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it's oftentimes unintentional. Interactions or behaviors that communicate some sort of bias towards historically marginalized groups. Again, we went over some examples of what those microaggressions are. One writer puts it this way with examples. She says, an Asian American student is complimented by a professor for speaking perfect English, but it's actually her first language. Uh, A black man notices that a white woman flinches and clutches her bag as she sees him in the elevator she's about to enter and is painfully reminded of racial stereotypes. A woman speaks up in an important meeting, but she can barely get a word out without being interrupted by her male colleagues. There's a name for what's happening in these situations, this writer says, when people's biases against marginalized groups reveal themselves in a way that leaves their victims feeling uncomfortable or even insulted, these are microaggressions. And one author that we talk about a lot at our all six locations, and we've read a book together as a small group called um, The Color of Compromise, the the author uh, named Dr. Jamar Tisby says this. He says, microaggression is racism by a thousand cuts. A paper cut is small but painful. Microaggressions are sort of everyday reminders that you are different, other, marginalized, less than. Many times, again, he says, it's unintentional. And and so I love the story of Cornelius and Peter because God, at the end of the day, wants to break these barriers down uh, of these biases, of these rating systems that we have for one another and saying that everybody is equal in the eyes of God because everybody is created in the image of God. And, and I truly believe this, and, and oftentimes I have a hard time with this as well, that when we view people in the image of God, a child of God, these barriers start to break down. And I remember uh, just a few days ago that Maria, my wife, and I were having a conversation, uh, and we ended up moving to be closer to her family. We moved a little bit more north uh, in Shoreline, uh, closer to the Bethany Greenlight campus. 
And so it, it wasn't very often that I would drive around North Seattle and Shoreline. And, and for those of you that are familiar with Seattle, uh, Aurora's Avenue is a, is a interesting street. You know, there's things that are just going on throughout the day and throughout the night. And, and oftentimes Aurora Avenue is also known where there are women who are working on the streets and for a while, I was like, what is happening here? Like, well, why is this being allowed? And, you know, and then my mind starts to go into these, like, dark, like, judgmental places. Like, isn't there other opportunities for, for people? And, and I'm just confessing this to you because uh, I, later I was convicted as I was driving down Aurora again. I was convicted that these people are actually someone's daughter. These people are someone's sons. And, and, and I would just caveat with this. These people aren't important just because they are someone's daughter or someone's son or someone's children. I would say at an even more macro level, these people are important because they were created in the image of God, period. That's why. And it hadn't occurred to me or even, you know, it come to my mind until that moment. And I, and I finally was convicted thinking, Wow, these are people that were created in the image of God just like me, and suddenly barriers broken down. This is the story of Peter and Cornelius. Now, three things happen in the text that we just read. I was telling the volunteers and the staff today, we don't have uh, all morning to go over everything that is happening, but I really encourage you, if you have the time, uh, to read Acts chapter 10. It's a really cool story of, of Cornelius and, and Peter and really the Spirit working in their lives. Three things happen. God speaks to Cornelius. God speaks to Peter. Then they speak to one another, Cornelius and Peter. And so let me just start by reading. This isn't on the screen, but let me just start off by reading a few verses that it kind of opens up the scene. In verse, in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says this, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the, Inti- the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. So Cornelius had this vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And then Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. So Cornelius saw this vision of an angel, knew that it was God sending a messenger, and Cornelius saying, what is it? What, do you, what are you asking me to do? And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come, to, come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. So Peter, he is staying with Simon the Tanner. I know there's all these Simons uh, whose house is by the sea. So God, let me just set this up. So, so God through an angel goes to Caesarea, a very Gentile nation, a very Gentile city. So those that didn't believe in God, they had very uh, different beliefs, a, a pagan worldview. Uh, and so an angel goes to Cornelius, who not only is a Gentile, but he works for the Roman Empire. And not only does he work for the Roman Empire, he's a centurion. So basically, he's an officer of the Roman army. 
Now, something unique about Cornelius is, uh, is that although he's in Caesarea, a very Gentile nation, and although he is working for the Roman Empire, uh, he still believed in God of Yahweh. He was God-fearing, and he gave to the poor. He did what was right, and, and God saw him in favorable measures. And so God spoke to him and said, Hey, Cornelius, I need you to go down to Joppa and retrieve or at least send men because, you know, he had servants. He had people working for him. He was an elite person in, uh, in Caesarea. And, and so God through an angel says, I want you to send some men to, to Joppa, which is about 40 miles south of Caesarea. If you think of modern-day Israel, it's on the west coast. Uh, Caesarea is on the northwest coast, and um, Joppa is on the south. So think of maybe Bellingham and Seattle, maybe a little bit closer. Uh, and he says, go to Caesarea, or go to Joppa and get Peter. Now something about Joppa is if Caesarea is a very Gentile city, then Joppa is a very Jewish city. And there was like this imaginary kind of unspoken line where Gentiles and Jews, they don't cross the track. They don't cross that street. The Gentiles stay in Caesarea, and the Jews stay in Joppa, where Peter and, Peter and Simon the Tanner was. They're both, both Jewish. And so you can imagine the, what, what the calling is. It's a very risky, and it's a very radical calling of what is happening to Cornelius. Cornelius, I, as a Gentile, not just any Gentile, but a centurion, a, an officer in the Roman guard uh, who persecute Jewish people and Christians, I want you, Cornelius, to cross the tracks, uh, or at least have your men cross the tracks, the unspoken world, and, and ask Peter to come up and to also come up on the other side of the tracks to come to Caesarea. Those are big, two really big asks. Go down to Caesarea, or from Caesarea, go to Joppa, get Peter, the, uh, a Jewish person, and have him also cross and come back to Caesarea. These are very big asks of these two people. And so here's what happens in, in verse 9. It says, about noon the following day as they were on their journey, so the, the Cornelius' men were on the way down to pick up Peter or at least invite him to Caesarea. It says this, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so that's Joppa, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He began hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet or like a blanket being let down to earth uh, by its four corners. Now, this is a vision. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals and, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's response was in verse 14, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. I mean, this is where the story gets interesting for me, and God is so amazing, and the Spirit is just working, and everything is by design. Nothing is by coincidence or accidental. Uh, remember, 
Cornelius sent men to cross over the other track. So these Gentile soldiers are coming to cross over to, to what they would consider no man's land into Joppa, Jewish people's territory, to bring Peter. And all, while they're walking, God now speaks to uh, Peter and his friends separately. And the way that God speaks to Peter is that the, the earth opened up. There was a blanket with all these animals and reptiles. And God says, eat. Eat of this if you're hungry. And, and Peter says, of course, I, God, what do you, I mean, God, I would say this. Peter was not being disobedient necessarily. In fact, Peter was trying to be very faithful to the Jewish laws. Uh, because to kill, there's blood, and, and in the Jewish dietary laws, you can't just eat animals and eat blood without going through a, a, a system, what we'd call kosher. And so Peter, being a religious person, saying, God, you know that I would never do that. Are you kidding me? I'm a good Jewish person. And I love God's response. In verse 14, when Peter says, surely not, Peter replied, I've never eaten I have never eaten anything impure or unclean, is what Peter says. I've never done such a thing. The voice spoke to him a second time, and this happened a third time. The voice, really, God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God says, do not call anything impure, because Peter here is saying, I'll never eat that. It's impure, it's unclean, and God says, Hey, well, wait a minute. You call this impure, and you call this unclean, but guess what? I created this. I made this. And so he says, do not call anything impure what God has made clean. I have made this clean. I have created this. I have designed this. I've, I said it's okay for you to eat this. Why are you calling this impure and unclean? Now, finally, the time comes when... Peter and Cornelius meet each other. And I think it's really interesting. In verse 27, it says, While talking to him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with and or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I love that. The time comes, they meet. Cornelius is saying, hey, would you, Cornelius' people, his soldiers are saying, hey, would you come and preach the gospel, essentially? Tell us about Jesus in Caesarea. And, and Peter reminds the guards, the soldiers, like, wait a minute, are you, wait, you, I'm confused. You're asking me to do What? You just did, did you from Caesarea, these Gentiles, from Cornelius, did you just cross over to the other tracks, to our side? And, and wait, wait a minute, let me get this straight. Not only did you cross over, now you're asking me to cross over to the other side to teach Cornelius about the person of Jesus? And, and he kind of snickers, I, I would imagine. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a gent. Don't you know that it's against our laws? And then suddenly Peter has this epiphany. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. 
I mean, even in these verses, Peter was confused when he saw these animals on the sheet. He was like, God's telling me to eat this, but this is really confusing to me. Why would God tell me to eat these animals? Because God knows that this is ceremonially unclean and impure. And then he has this revelation, and he says, oh, my gosh, I think I got it. The the whole time, uh, I associated God's calling for me about animals and food and eating, and, and though that might have been true, there was a bigger message that God was giving to Peter and Peter's friends, was saying that whatever God has made clean, whatever God has created, what is good and beautiful in the eyes of God, therefore should be good and beautiful to, to you, essentially to, to you and, and to me and to us as a church. It's so interesting the way that God was creating this and, and orchestrating this entire scene. And really, when I think about it, the message was just as, even though Cornelius is the one that wanted to learn something, this was just as much for Peter, if not more, than for Cornelius. Then verse 34, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. I love this scene. God, just in God's own creativity, says, you know, I'm going to give a message for you, Cornelius, and I'm going to give a message to you, Peter, and you don't even know what it's about yet. I'm stirring it in your hearts, but you don't exactly know what's happening or what's about to happen. God is like, I'm about to blow your mind on what the social economy is all about. And it took them a little bit. You got to even gave them signs about animals and you know, on top of sheets and, and reptiles and things, and they still did, didn't really know. And then suddenly it clicked and said, oh, I get it. The message of the gospel of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, is now for everybody. And if it's for everybody, we should be for everybody, removing all barriers, all rating systems. These two groups had rating systems for one another. And he says, no more. No, there is no more rating systems. What you need to do is view each other on the other side of the tracks, your quote-unquote enemies, those that look different than you, that speak differently than you, uh, that eat different foods than you, that might speak different language than you. Those rating systems should be out the door because that is the world's way of rating other people. And we, just like them, have foolishly been uh, convinced that we have the power to assign value and God is saying, that's foolish. Nobody, nobody has the power to assign value to anybody because that value has already been made by God. And the very fact that we are all created in the image of God, the value system is already there. We are infinitely loved, perfectly and fearfully and wonderfully made, no matter what side of the tracks you're on. And so what we see, we see three things, and I would say this, there's three application points that we need to learn from the interaction of Peter and Cornelius. Number one is this, it's God's economy is different from the world's economy. Now again, Cornelius, he was a man of war, man of power. Not only 
power because he was part of the Roman military, the most powerful military of the day. He was, a, he was an officer. He was a leader in that very army. He had servants. He was wealthy. He had status. And according to uh, Dr. Willie Jennings, who wrote a commentary on, on Acts, he says that Cornelius was a man of aspiration. A man of aspiration. In, uh, in Caesarea, the, the land of Gentiles, people wanted to be Cornelius. But instead of Cornelius taking on uh, that ego, that pride of being the mo- one of the most powerful men in the army, instead he opened up his hands and he wanted to listen to God. Can you imagine someone in Cornelius' position God says, hey, Cornelius, I want you to send people to the other side of the tracks, bring back Peter, and and learn from him. Wait, what? This man, Cornelius, had everything. Again, as Dr. Jennings says, he was a man to be aspired after. He was a man of influence. He was a man that all the little boys wanted to be like when they grew up. And yet God says, you know what, Cornelius, you have something to learn. And not only do you have something to learn, the way that you're going to learn it is from the person on the other side of the tracks. It's not going to be in the echo chamber where everyone agrees with you. It's not going to be in the place where everyone bows down and worships you. It's not even going to be in the place where everyone looks like you. The way that you're going to learn about who I am, God is saying, is going to be learning from a person on the other side of the tracks that you deem as different, as enemies, as funny looking, as strange, as violent, or whatever it is, that's the person you're going to learn from. The humility of Cornelius. And we can put up a wall like maybe Cornelius didn't, but maybe Cornelius could have. But for many of us, we can put up a wall and just fight to our bones that maybe, especially in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle, that everybody else is racist or everyone else has these rating systems and everybody is judgmental and everybody does this and everybody does that, but me, not me. You all do that. I don't. Cornelius had every opportunity to do that because he was worshipped. He can do no wrong. And yet he opened up his hands and he says, I have something to learn. He says, God, whatever Peter has for me, yes, may it be so. Whatever I'm blinded with, whatever I don't see, whatever I don't know, God, I open up my hands. And yes, I will learn from the very person that I'm supposed to stay away from. Are we willing to just open up our hands and say, God, what are you teaching me? Or do we want to live in our own stubbornness and our own pride and our ego and say, nah, that's not me. That's not me. I remember just going to the South in my uh, uh, civil rights pilgrimage that I did in the summer, I kind of went with that attitude. I went to parts of Montgomery. I went to, I went to Selma. I went to parts of Birmingham and, and, and Georgia and Memphis, Tennessee. You know, I spent days and days traveling. And I remember when I first got there, I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn about what these people did here in the South. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not like these people. I never owned slaves. I never, you know, perpetuated Jim Crow laws. I never discriminated. Uh, in fact, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, the progressive, 
the liberal, the, the people that know it all. And, and so I'm going to come down. I just want to see how you did it. And I learned something. I learned that everybody was guilty in perpetuating the idea of power and privilege and racism. If you know a little bit of history about Seattle, we got some blood on our hands too, friends. Same with the West Coast. And I remember just being so humbled by, by learning the history of not just the South, but the entire country during the Civil Rights era. It took me a while, but finally I had to say, okay, God, teach me what is going on with me. How do I perpetuate this myself now in 2022? So God's economy is very different. Yes, Cornelius is the most powerful person in the Roman, in that time, in that nation. But he humbles himself and says, you know what? I give up all that power, all that privilege, all that worship of me, and I say, God, teach me something, even from a person that I'm not supposed to learn from. God's economy is so different. And to that end, as we talked about God's lesson, we learn about God's economy in this story, we learn about God's lesson. Even from Simon the Tanner, I don't want us to just read right past this. It says that Peter was basically roommates, lived together with this guy named Simon the Tanner. Now, Tanner was an occupation where they took animals, they skinned animals, and made leather for sale. And again, going back to the Jewish laws and what is seen as impure and unclean, you would imagine that if someone's occupation was to skin animals for their hide, you would see a lot of blood, you would see a lot of guts, you would just see really gross things. And yet, it was that kind of environment that Peter lived in. And not only that, it was the welcoming of Cornelius' soldiers. And as we talked about, oftentimes the very people that, want to te- that God wants to use to teach you something are oftentimes in the most surprising of ways. So not only would we, would we be humble to ask, God, where have I been blinded? God, where have I just been missing the mark? The second lesson would be, God, who do I need to talk to? God, who can I learn from? And will, will you give me the strength? Will you give me the courage to do so? God, would you help me to create relationships? Hey, let me just do this. If you took an inventory of your best friends, or, or not even just best friends, but the people that you associate with you know, week after week, are these people that, again, uh, is this an echo chamber? Like, whatever you say, you're like, they're like, yeah, you're right. Whatever they say, you say, yeah, you're right. Or is there space in your community, in your social circles, to have sometimes hard but good conversations where one is in this posture of a place of learning? I hope so, because if we're not, we're going to be missing out on God's lessons because sometimes the way God teaches us is through and only through people that might have different lived experiences. Because that's just logical, isn't it? How can someone from the same lived experiences as you, I'm not saying they can't teach you anything at all, but how can they teach you about the world when they lived in the same world as you all their lives as well? Now, again, I'm not saying that you should, you know, dismiss all your friends that, you know, that you have a lot of commonality with and that look like you and so forth. No, you shouldn't do that. 
What I'm saying is don't exclude people. Don't create barriers. Don't create this rating system that you are a five. I want to hang out with you. You are the one I want to be around. You from the other side of the tracks who look differently and all vote differently and all those things, I'm going to give you a one. So why would I ever hang out with you? No, the, the, that rating system that we saw on that TV show is not of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God only has one rating system, and the rating system is the very fact that we were all created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. So God's economy is different. God's lessons come in different ways. And most importantly, God's desire is that people, all nations, it says in Acts chapter 10, would come together, that there would be no favoritism. In other words, there would be no rating system. The barriers would be passed. Confession is made. Repentance is made. New learnings are happening. Oh, just because they look like that way, you're telling me that I'm not in danger? Oh, just because they came from there, are you saying that they're actually smart and educated? Oh, because they look like that, they're actually Americans too, just like me? That takes time to learn from people. And my hope is that for us as a church, we would be open to the ways that God is convicting us as I invite the band back up, I, I, I want to end with another really dark illustration and, and, and an example. I'm not saying go out and watch this show, uh, but I got fascinated with it because uh, it was a time where I remember being alive as a little kid where this was happening. There was a really bad person named Jeffrey Dahmer, and there was a, there was a Netflix show about it, and I was intrigued uh, there's some kids in here, so I won't, I won't go over everything that he did, but he was a really bad person. And, and, but a lot of the victims that uh, he did very bad things to uh, were majority gay black men. And when he was interviewed by the detectives, the, the question was, why, like, what is going on? Like, why, what, what is up with this pattern and Jeffrey Dahmer says, uh, oh, I just thought they were attractive, or I was attracted to them one way or another. And the detective said, are you, like, basically, are you racist? Does this have anything to do with race? Did this have to do with homophobia or sexual, whatever? And, and he kept saying, no, it had nothing to do with that. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. And, and now, as a viewer and as someone who's read the articles, uh, a part of me believes that he is telling his own truth. Uh, I truly believe that maybe in his own eyes, he didn't connect the dots to see that there was uh, a sense of racialization that was happening uh, of certain bodies, of certain looks, of certain genders. There was a certain type of objectification and fetishization that was happening. And, and I kind of believe him by saying that really, it wasn't really occurring in his brain, in his mind, for a lot of different reasons. And, and I know that's a really extreme example, extreme example, a dark example at that. But how many times are we blinded with our own, maybe even our self-elevation of the ways that we have, have missed the mark on how to view the image of God? That if we're being honest with ourselves, we have done the very fact of what Peter and Cornelius' people were doing prior to the Spirit moving in their hearts. 
And so as we close, I ask you to consider these questions. In what ways have we showed favoritism? In what ways have we showed microaggressions? Again, in subtle ways, again, even in unintentional ways, or maybe the confession this morning for you is that it's very intentional. And you are saying, God, change my my thoughts and my patterns and my behavior. God, undo the things maybe I've learned as a kid growing up. Maybe that is the confession for you today. Maybe the confession for you is, I've lived in this homogenous world. I want to go out and learn something in true fashion of the Spirit in ways that can only come with people that are different from me. And I promise you, you will come out different. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are and for the the divisions and the barriers that you break down. God, your spirit works in mysterious ways, even ways that we don't even know. Just like Peter and Cornelius, they had no idea what was about to happen. And yet you changed the world with what happened through in and through them. And so God, may you help us change our world even the little worlds that we live in, that we would be examples of ones who wouldn't rate people from a scale of zero to five, but we would already consider people as all fives because they were created in your image no matter what. Even if they claim to not know you or not believe in you or even hate you, God, you still created them. And may we love them as we love you, as you see them. So this week, God, convict us. Bring your spirit down and teach us something. Compel us to reach out to somebody, to ask more questions, to befriend people, not to exploit them or to tokenize them, but to genuinely want relationships in appreciating other people's lived experiences. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue, let's end with worship.